Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 2. Last audio, I left off with the presentation in the temple with the homage of the prophets Simeon and Anna. And now, after that, not in Luke, but in Matthew, we learn that the Magi visit the newborn king of the Jews. The We three kings of Orion are story, except they weren't three kings. They brought him gifts of fragrant, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, of course, Joseph was warned in a dream that Herod was going to try to kill the young child because the Magi had told Herod that the Messiah was in Bethlehem somewhere. And so we have the slaughter of the, slaughter of the innocents. But first, Jesus is carried to Egypt by Joseph and Mary, and then the children at Bethlehem were slain in the slaughter of innocents. Now, all of that is recorded in Matthew, and I've already done audios of Matthew, Matthew 2, verses 1 through 18. We now take up the story again in Luke here, where Jesus comes back from Egypt in Luke 2, 39. I'll read that in the King James here. And when they had accomplished all things that were according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. Now, Luke left out a whole bunch of stuff that Matthew tells us about, and so I'm going to hop over now to pick up the story in Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23, starting in verse 19. But when Herod died, that's Herod the Great, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. So how long were they down there in Egypt, the Holy Family? About a few months, according to John Gill. Now the day that Herod died was a day that was celebrated as a day of rejoicing by the Jews after that, because Herod the Great was a real SOB. He was a tyrant. you got to read his biography sometimes. I've read two of his biographies, some of Josephus and another guy, Gelb, I think his name was Norman Gelb. Jewish guy wrote a good biography of him. He's a fascinating guy. If you were married to him, he'd kill you. Or if you had sons by him, he'd kill you too. He was 70 years old at his death. He had reigned for 37 years. He was quite a remarkable king, though. He built up all of Jerusalem, all, all of Israel. Masada, I think he built. He built Caesarea. He built Tiberias. What did he build? Tiberias. He, he No, Sebaste, which is the old Samaria. He built all over uh, Jerusalem and He's prophesied about in Daniel chapter 11, last half of the of Daniel chapter 11. So you need to know about Herod the Great. But anyway, he's dead. Now, Josephus has got a great quote for how he died. Quote, a burning fever seized him with an intolerable itching all over his body and continual pains of a colic. His feet swelled with a dropsy. He had an inflammation in the lower part of his belly, a putrefaction. A putrefaction in his privy parts. A little tongue twister there. That means his ding-dong was putrid, which bred worms. So he had worms all around his, his, his penis. Isn't that awful? Worms. A frequency and difficulty of breathing and convulsions in all his members. He had a voracious appetite, a stinking breath. Now, how you have a voracious appetite being in this kind of situation is beyond me. His intestines abounded with ulcers. When he found that all means made use of were ineffectual and that he must die, 
He attempted to lay violent hands upon himself, but was prevented and soon after expired in a very miserable manner. This is from John Gill quoting Josephus. Now, there's another good part of that story, too, is that Herod knew he was despised by the people and knew that nobody was going to mourn him. So he told his ministers to go out to the Hippodrome there in Jerusalem, where there were a bunch of people gathered, and to slaughter them all, because if they weren't going to cry for him, they'd cry for all of their relatives and all who had been murdered by Herod from his deathbed. But fortunately, his officials didn't carry out that unholy order. The angel that told Joseph to leave Egypt because Herod was dead is not told. We're not told who he was. People speculate it's Gabriel. Why does it say? Why does Matthew say that those who sought the child's life are dead? The angel said this: Go into Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. Are dead. It seems to me like it should just be for him, Herod, who sought the child's life is dead. Well, three commentators, Gil Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, say that it's just Herod, only the plural is being put for the singular. This is a common expression in most languages where only is one, one is meant. In other words, it's kind of an indefinite reference for, for the pronoun, for those who seek the child, life or dead. Actually, it's only one. I guess I can see that in English. Some people say that, no, that's not the answer, that Herod had somebody else who wanted the son dead. That was Antipater, his son. Antipater might be worried about the Messiah too because he was next in line after Herod and he's waiting to see Herod die. He might think, well, I need to get the Messiah too because the Messiah might kick me out just as well as he kicked my father out. Now, we'll note that Herod ordered Antipater killed five days before he died, so that that was moot, but I guess it could be the angels referring to those two, Herod and Antipater. Some people say it was the executioners who were sent by Herod to Bethlehem to kill all the babies. But why would they have died? What would make them die? No, I don't think that's it. I think it's probably just Herod. In fact, some people say that Matthew might have been influenced in his choice of words by saying those by a strikingly analogous situation in the book of Exodus. Exodus 4.19 says this, Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And so that kind of sounds plural. All the men who are seeking your life are dead, so he might have used the same expression. Well, that's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's idea. That seems a stretch to me. At any rate, Herod is dead. Now, notice that Joseph immediately obeyed that angel. Whenever he saw an angel in a dream, he did exactly what the angel told him, like, go down to Egypt, leave Egypt. He didn't mess around. He was an obedient guy. The angel told him to go back to Israel, not Judea specifically. In fact, in in verse 22, our next verse, we'll see that the angel told him, don't go to Judea because bad stuff's happening there. You're not going to be safe there. You need to go to Galilee. But at first, he told him just to go to Israel, the, in the Holy Land at large in general. Now, in verse 21, we see Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. John Gill says that, excuse me, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that that shows that Joseph intended to return to Bethlehem. Well, I don't know why that would show that, but Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that even if the scripture doesn't specifically say that he intended to return to Bethlehem, it was logical for him to go back to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is four miles south of Jerusalem. Well, this is hometown, his family's there, but also he has the Messiah, and where's the Messiah going to rule from? Jerusalem, of course, so if you got the Messiah, what's the logical place to go to? Jerusalem, the city of the great king. 
So we'll, we'll assume he's planning to go back to Jerusalem. But then we read in Matthew 2, verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, this is when he heard, that's when Joseph heard, that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. Archelaus actually took over from Herod, and he ruled Samaria, Judea, Judea and Idumea. Sam Judea is the area around Jerusalem. Samaria is just to the north, and Idumea is Edom, just to the south. Archelaus ruled from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., about 12 years there. He was an evil and cruel man, just like his father. One time he killed thousands of Jews at the temple during a Passover feast. That happened at the beginning of his reign, which is just about the time that Joseph is getting to go there. So Archelaus is a, t a bad character, and that might have explained why J Joseph was afraid to go there. It's this verse 22 in Matthew 2, when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, the same Archelaus who's killed thousands of Jews in the temple on a Passover, during a Passover, Joseph was afraid to go there. That probably explains it right there. But in addition to his natural fear, he also got warned by God in a dream again. The angel appeared to him to go to Egypt, to come back to Egypt, and now having come back from Egypt, or maybe just before he came back to Egypt, we don't know, but at some point in this process... Joseph was warned by God in a dream, and he left for Galilee, and we assume that he was warned to go to Galilee, don't go to Judea. So you see, God is protecting his Messiah. God is protecting his son Jesus. It's kind of, And you know, God protects us the same way in ways we don't see. All of this is taking place according to natural means. From our point of view, Joseph is doing his thing to protect his son. It's all natural. But God is superintending the whole process. Finally, Archelaus, by the way, got banished by Caesar Augustus for his cruelty. Now, up in Galilee, we find another son, not Archelaus, but another son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. And, of course, he's famous because he killed John the Baptist. And he married his brother, Herod Philip II's wife, Herodias. And then Salome did a sexy dance. And Salome said, give me what? And, and Herod Antipas said, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And Salome says, give me the head of John the Baptist. So Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. So he's kind of famous. Now, he was not a king, but he was a tetrarch, a lesser Roman official of Galilee and Perea, which is the Transjordan area, east of the Jordan, going from the Sea of Galilee almost down to the uh, north of the Dead Sea. And also of Galilee, the area around the Sea of Galilee and Nazareth. He was a milder person than Archelaus. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Being intent on building two cities, Julius, that's Bethsaida, Julius, on the northeast, northeastern, excuse me, the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Tiberias, which is on the southwestern shore, he endeavored by a mild carriage and promises of considerable immunities to entice people from other provinces to come and settle in them. He was besides in a state of enmity with his brother Archelaus, this was a most favorable circumstance to the Holy Family. So, here Antipas is trying to get immigrants into the Galilean region. He hates Archelaus. So, if the Holy Family goes up to Galilee, Herod Antipas is going to protect them. He's going to keep Archelaus out. Archelaus is not going to go looking for the Messiah up in Galilee when he's got an enemy on the throne up on the, uh, in the governorship up there. Now, even though he was milder than Archelaus, he was still crafty and licentious according to both Josephus and the Gospels. And I've already mentioned why. Having been enticed to murder John the Baptist merely because somebody did a belly dance. In addition to the fact that Herod Antipas was milder than Archelaus, Joseph might have, might have wanted to take Jesus up to Galilee because Galilee was an obscure place. The Holy Family could live there unobserved and free from danger. We go to verse 23 in Matthew 2. 
and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. That's finishing the sentence at the end of verse 22. He left, he, Joseph, left for the region of Galilee. Verse 23, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, of course, it is thought that the Virgin Mary conceived Jesus in Nazareth because most people think it happened at the Annunciation by the angel Gabriel, Luke 1:26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. But it doesn't say that, Jesus, that Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit then. That's just a supposition that people make. That's in the sixth month of Elizabeth, Elizabeth the mother of John the Baptist, Elizabeth's pregnancy. But at any rate, we'll assume that Jesus was conceived in Nazareth, so this is his hometown. Of course, after everything, well, we're going to find out he's going to end up in Nazareth with his mother and father. Now, this there's a very interesting thing here. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. There is no one prophet anywhere that says that the Messiah shall be called a Nazarene. And so, as the commentators say, this creates a difficulty. Adam Clark said, it's difficult to ascertain what prophecy is being referred to. I've got a good another quote by Jameson Fawcett and Brown who says this, but how shall we account for the manner in which St. Matthew and others apply this and various other circumstances to the fulfillment of ancient traditions? In other words, how does the prophet say that he was born a Nazarene? This question has greatly agitated divines and critics for more than a century. And of course, that was what, in the 1800s? And now we're in the 2100s? So more than two centuries, people are agitated. Well, I was agitated about it, but I think I am going to explain it to where it satisfies me anyway. We're going to have to give four options, though, as to how the prophet said that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Let me give you option number one. It's referring to Isaiah 11, verse 1, says this option. Isaiah 11, 1 says this, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And, of course, that's a famous messianic prophecy, and it's talking about a, a stump that's cut down like the the house of David was cut down through the exile to Babylon and so forth. The house of David was over with, but then a little branch springs up from the, and that little branch ends up growing into a big old tree again, and that would be the Messiah who, who is the who uh, starts the church from humble origins. Now, branch is Netzer in Hebrew, and Nazarene comes from Netzer. Why? Because of the multitude and plant of plants and trees that grew there. There were lots of shrubby type trees and little plants and so according to this option and this Ellicott is a commentator who holds to this option and this is an illusion the word Nazarene is an illusion when the pro when it, when Matthew says that the prophets say that Jesus will be called a Nazarene Matthew is making a, an allusion to the fact that Nazarene, Nazarene comes, Nazareth comes from Netzer. Netzer. Quoting Jameson Fawcett and Brown, this is an allusion to Isaiah's prediction of his lowly twig-like upspringing from the branchless, dried-up stump of Jesse. Here's another quote from Ellicott. So he, this Matthew, found in the word of scorn the name of glory. The town of Nazareth probably took its name from this meaning of the word as pointing to the trees and shrubs for which it was conspicuous. The general reference to the prophets is explained by the fact that the same thought is expressed in Jeremiah 23.5, Jeremiah 33.15, Zechariah 3.8, and Zechariah 6.12. 
Though there the Hebrew word is zamach and not netzer. Those, if you look at those four scriptures, they talk about the branch, which is referring to Jesus. Messianic reference to branch. For example, Jeremiah 33:15. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, said the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. The righteous branch prophecies. But remember, that's a different Hebrew word. It's not netzer, but it's the same idea. But Eliza 11:1, 1, it's netzer. And so we go back to Matthew 2.23. The fact that he lived in a city called Nazareth was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a netzer, a branch. He shall be called someone who lives in a city that's named after a branch because he was the branch. In my humble opinion, that's a stretch. That's a stretch. Let's look at option number two, which I don't agree with either, but let's look at it. This option says that being called a Nazarene is the same thing as being called a Nazarite because the words are close. And, of course, a Nazarite is someone who took a vow to God, a vow to God not to eat drink, to eat, to, not to drink wine, not to cut his hair, a vow of holiness. Judges 13.5. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. I think this is referring to Samuel. Samson, excuse me, Samson. He shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And so the idea is, even though that referred to Samson, that here that it's referring to Jesus because he shall be called a Nazarite, which is the same thing as being called a Nazarene, as that's why he lived in Nazareth. Well, I think you can see that's somewhat of a stretch, too. The commentator Ellicott denies it for two reasons. Nazarite and Nazareth, first reason. Nazarite and Nazareth are spelled differently in both Greek and Hebrew. And plus, Jesus' life was much more holy than the holiness expressed by a Nazarite vow. So I think that's a stretch. So let's go to option number three, and this is the option that I hold to, and so does my NIV study Bible. This option says that Matthew is referring to several Old Testament prefigurations and predictions that the Messiah would be despised. And in Jesus' day, Nazarene was practically synonymous with despised. So if we read the verse, Matthew 2.23, this way, it makes sense. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a despised person. Now that makes a lot of sense to me. In other words, he should be called a Nazarene, which is the same thing as saying he should be called a despised person, because we all know that Nazarenes are, are lowlifes, despised people. Now, let's look at some arguments in favor of that position. First of all, notice that it's prophets, prophets more than one. More than one prophets say that he should be called a Nazarene. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that I'm going to give you four instances of where there were Old Testament prophecies showing that the Messiah was to be despised. For example, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's because he was beaten on the cross. Isaiah 53, 7 through 9. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. These famous suffering servant passages from Isaiah 
53. Here's another one in Isaiah 53:12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between two criminals. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then, of course, there's all of Psalm 22, the famous messianic psalm. My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? So I think this makes a lot of sense. Just talking, Matthew's just saying that he, he'll be called a Nazarene because, he's going to be, because he was despised. The prophet said he was going to be despised, and a Nazarene is despised, and that's why Jesus grew up in, in the city, so he could be called a despised person, so he could fulfill the prophecy. Let me give you a quote from a commentator named Benson, who is actually quoting John Chrysostom, the famous preacher in Constantinople in the 5th century. There was among the Jews a celebrated thief called Ben-Netzer, and in allusion to him they gave the name to Christ. He was his very going to dwell at Nazareth, as Jesus is very going to dwell at Nazareth, was an occasion of his being despised and rejected by the Jews. Thus, when Philip said to Nathanael, We have found Jesus of Nazareth, of whom Moses spoke, Nathanael answered, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And when Nicodemus seemed to favor him, the rest of the council said to him, Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. Here, then, we have a plain sense of these words. He was sent to this contemptible place that he might there have a name of infamy and contempt put upon him, according to the frequent intimations of the prophets. I think Chrysostom's exactly right. So, let me give you one other option that Benson mentions, that several people mention, that a lot of commentators mention this. I don't believe it to be true, but some people say Matthew could be quoting to prophets whose writings were lost or not canonized, not put included in the scripture. Well, I don't think so. Now, to summarize all this, this difficult verse here, this was to fulfill what? Living in a city called Nazareth. Joseph came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this, Joseph and Jesus is living in Nazareth, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, Isaiah, Isaiah 53, for example, which spoke of Jesus, the Messiah, as being a despised person. This was to fulfill the fact that he was called a despised per person. He should be called a Nazarene, a despised person because we all call Nazarenes a despised person these days in the time of Matthew. Moving on now to, well, that's it for uh, Matthew 2, 19 through 23. That was a long introduction to Luke 2, verse 39, but I thought it was necessary. We go now to Luke 2, 40. Now, Luke 2, 40 is an interesting verse. It's the only verse that talks about Jesus' childhood between Zero, uh, one, uh, let's see, I guess between age zero and age 12. One verse in the gospel. So let's read it. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Even as Jesus is the perfect model for the new man, the new Adam, he was the perfect child. So this raises a an interesting theological question. If Jesus was a perfect human being, did he need his parents' parenting skills to grow properly? Could Mary and Joseph just stand back and say, well, we don't need to parent this child, he's God. Well, no. There's a difference between sinning and growing up. For example, if a little kid drops his food on the floor and he waves his fork around and he, and he slobbers all over the place, that's not sinning. That's just not being muscularly coordinated enough, not being mature enough to do what he's supposed to do. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph had to teach Jesus like they had to teach any other boy. So I don't think that's a problem. Now, they never had to spank him because he never sinned. Now, that, that would be nice. No sin. 
He grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. I'm sure Mary and Joseph did their part, but of course, God is teaching him. He, he's, he's totally in tune with God. He doesn't have the flesh that we all have pulling him away to run after worldly things, money, power, sex, and all that, and fame. Now, here's an application point we can make here. If our kids are born of the Holy Spirit like Jesus was, if we can raise up our kids as Christians and get them to believe in Jesus, and if we can be godly like Joseph and Mary, and if we can raise our kids according to the Scriptures in a godly fashion from the time they are born, guess what? The trial is probably going to be like Jesus, strong, filled with wisdom, with the favor of God upon him. Being a Christian parent, there's nothing more, how can I say, requisite for human happiness on this planet. We need strong Christians, and a lot of Christians get really dedicated to the Lord after they've sowed their wild oats and taken every chemical substance known to mankind and having fornicated with every uh, member of the opposite sex or the same sex that they can get their hands on, and then they get saved. But they're screwed up. Their emotions are all messed up. They've been raised by alcoholic parents who beat them and abuse them. And by golly, the emotional damage is terrible and it takes them so long to get that straightened out. But if you can raise a kid right from the time he's born, they won't have all that baggage and they can do a lot of damage for the kingdom. Now let's go to when Jesus is 12 years old. This is, we read this in Luke chapter 2 verse 41. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Now of course... The law says, for example, in Exodus 23:17 and Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, the law says that all males every year, three times a year, had to go to the major feast. The women didn't have to go. They could go, but they didn't have to. But the men had to go to the major feast. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, Pesach, as the Jews call it. The Feast of Weeks, Shaviot, or Pentecost. And the Feast of Booths, or Sukkoth, as the Jews call that one. We go now to Luke chapter 2, verse 42 through 45. And when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. That's the Passover. Verse 43. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. Now, the first thing we need to ask ourselves, were Joseph and Mary guilty of child neglect for not knowing where their child was for three days? So, no, they shouldn't be held responsible for that. It was common for children to travel with relatives and friends in large caravans. And so, Joseph and Mary had just left Jesus with some relatives and friends somewhere in the caravan and, and went off. And Jesus probably left that caravan to go teach in the temple, and it was just one of those things. They left him behind. Can you imagine how Joseph and Mary felt? I mean, it's one thing to lose your kid. I've lost a kid one time in an airport in East France that scared the ever-loving blazes out of me. I've never been so panicked in my life. Can you imagine if you had the Messiah and had lost the Messiah? How could you go to God and say, Dear God, uh, please forgive me. I've lost your son. That's pretty bad. Real bad. Luke 2 Verse 46 and 47. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them. Now, of course, three days might be parts of three days. That's the way the Jews did things. But still, parts of three days, that's a long time to not know where, you, where your kid is. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He's 12 years old now. 
Now, these two verses give us insight as to how Jesus learned. Now, here's what he did. First, he listened to what was being taught. Second, he asked questions of the teachers. And third, he gave answers to the questions asked of him. All that's in this verse here. Listening, asking, and answers. Now, if you want a good way, if you're a teacher and you want to teach, you need to look at this. He's, Jesus is our example in so many things. This is how Jesus learned. And, of course, if you're going to be a teacher, you've got to learn first. You listen, you ask questions, and then you let people ask you questions. That's the way you do it. By the way, I, I heard a preacher one time get up and say, Now, look, don't just listen to me preach. If you have a question, I want you to ask me. Nobody ever asked him. And that's because the preacher, the teacher, never asked questions of his audience. People are not going to speak up unless you prod them, unless you say, answer this question. Can you answer this? What about this? Look at them. Look them in the eye and say, please answer this. You'll get interaction. You'll get an interesting teaching. You'll get participation. And you might even learn something because a lot of times you ask people things and they ask questions that you never thought of before. So Jesus is carrying on a back and forth, an intelligent, learned discussion of the scriptures with the rabbis of Israel, a 12-year-old kid. Now, that's why all who heard him were amazed, as verse 47 says. You don't see a 12-year-old kid doing that ever. But Jesus was doing it. Those rabbis were very learned, very intelligent. And Jesus was a very young boy. That's like a junior high student discussing physics with Einstein. Now, the questions that were being asked, I'm, I'm curious as to about what Jesus is asking them. I wonder whether he was asking the rabbis, what in the world does your oral tradition have to do with God's Old Testament scriptures, the law of Moses? Why does it contradict everything in the Old Testament? I don't know whether he saw that yet at 12 years old, but he was getting there. I suspect when he, when he started his ministry 18 years later, that was one of the key things he talked about was you're making the law of God of no effect with your traditions. Luke chapter 2, verse 48. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. Now, of course they were astonished. They didn't expect to find their 12-year-old son debating the, debating the learned leaders of Israel. Remember, Joseph and Mary were simple people. They didn't hobnob with the, the intelligentsia of Israel. Now, Mary's obviously ticked off. Now, was she correct? Did Jesus treat them badly? Well, think about that. If he did treat them badly, then he sinned. And Jesus is not a sinner. He's sinless, of course. Uh, the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us. So he knew no sin. So this was not a sin. All right. So if he didn't sin, did Mary sin when she got mad at him and said, Child, why have you treated us like this? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of difficult to be too hard on her. I mean, she's a mother that's lost her child for three days. But she did sort of get on Jesus' case unjustly. Had to be unjustly because Jesus never sinned. So, yeah, I guess she sinned. Maybe it was a small sin, but it was a sin. Well, if so, what does that do with the Catholic doctrine that Mary was immaculately conceived? You know, come to think of it, if you're immaculately conceived without sin, does that mean you live your whole life without sin? You might be born. Adam and Eve, for example, were born without sin, but they ended up sinning later on. Do the Catholics believe that Mary sinned after she was immaculately conceived? Well, Catholic doctrine is so amazing to me, sometimes I can't believe it when I read it. I was just 
caught up with the idea just because Mary is allegedly immaculately conceived, does that mean the Catholics believe she lived a complete sinless life while well, a short excursion into the internet says yes that's exactly what they believe that mary lived a sinless life which is the biggest bunch of hogwash i have ever heard and if she lived a sinless life how do, how do catholics answer this mary didn't sin when she says why have you treated us like this your father and i've been looking for you in great anxiety she unjustly accused jesus of treating them harshly that's a sin folks mary was not sinless now we do have to show that jesus was sinless and i'm going to show you that in a minute so let's summarize that. Well, let's look at a possible scenario as to how Jesus was not at fault for disappearing for three days. Here's a possible scenario as to why he didn't tell Joseph and Mary where he was. He might have started talking with the rabbis. The caravan that Joseph and Mary left him with took off without Jesus knowing it while Jesus is talking in the temple. Nobody told Jesus the caravan was leaving, so it wasn't his fault. Joseph and Mary assume Jesus is in that caravan. They've got no reason to think he was doing anything so strange as arguing with rabbis in the temple. So everybody was just a misunderstanding. Things happen in life. That could have happened. So Jesus was not at fault. And actually, Joseph and Mary were not at fault for what happened. But Mary was at fault for yelling at Jesus. Why have you treated us this way? She was at fault for that. She was not sinless. Next time you see the Pope, ask him about that. So let's summarize this. Joseph, Jesus and Mary were not guilty of negligence. Jesus was not guilty of treating his parents badly, but Mary was guilty of accusing Jesus of treating his parents badly. Luke chapter 2, verse 49, He, Jesus, said to them, his parents, Why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now this, why are you searching, me, searching for me, question that Jesus asked is spoken in total innocence. Jesus thought it was so natural that he should be after his father's business that anyone could have seen it. Jesus had there's something about Jesus's personality he he was he was so innocent like he would look at people and say why didn't you believe me oh you have little faith and I don't even think he was criticizing people so much as he couldn't understand it why can't you believe that I can just say that the storm will be stilled and it will why can't you believe that I can make you walk on water what's your problem not in a condemning sort of tone but in a wondering sort of tone why why can you not believe but anyway, I believe that I believe that he's not reproving his mother. Why are you searching for me? Because it was reasonable for his mother to be searching for him. But I think that he was just asking an innocent question. Uh, listen, of course I'm in the temple trying to advance my knowledge of the scripture because I am learning about how to go about my father's business. Now, of course, he's talking about his heavenly father. In that day, there was nothing more natural than a son taking up his father's business. And in fact, that's one way that we know that Jesus was a carpenter. And in fact, Jewish teach, teachers determined that at the age of 12, a boy must begin to learn his trade. And Joseph, Jesus, as a matter of fact, did follow in Joseph's, Joseph's footsteps as a carpenter. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read, the people are saying this, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? So he was a carpenter. But these words show that he understood his unique relationship to his heavenly father, not his, his earthly father, Joseph, who's not his actual father, but his, I don't know what you call Joseph, his special father, his earthly father. Now, it's impossible to say when Jesus realized what he had been sent to the world to do. But probably by age 12, he realizes now he's going to be the savior of the world. He's talking those scriptures. I, I mentioned that he might have been asking about the Jewish traditions. I bet another part of the scriptures he was talking to them about were the Messianic scriptures. He's trying to figure out how he fulfills the Messianic scriptures. For example, Malachi being born in Bethlehem, 
That might be a good one. Luke chapter 2, verse 50, but they did not understand what he said to them. His parents couldn't understand this boy. Jesus understands his relationship to the Father. He understands it, but his parents don't. Now, this is despite the fact that Gabriel had appeared to Joseph and Mary before Jesus' birth, and those are wonderful prophecies we've read about in Luke chapter 1. This is despite the fact that four announcements have been made to Joseph and Mary about Jesus before Jesus' birth. The shepherds who were watching their flocks by night came in. Simeon, this boy will be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. He will make known the innermost thoughts of people. Anna came in after Simeon. The wise men came from the east. So you see, they've had lots of supernatural help to understand this situation they're in, being the parents of the Messiah. But they couldn't understand why their 12-year-old boy was talking about scriptures with these rabbis. Maybe their memories had grown dim in the hustle and bustle of daily life. Maybe they forgot all those earlier prophecies. I find that hard to believe, but it had been 12 years. Maybe they... They still, it, it, you know, it takes a lot of explanation to talk about supernatural things to natural people. I mean, the disciples were sitting right there listening to the Son of God, and they didn't understand. Resurrection, crucifixion, resurrection, what are you talking about? So Joseph and Mary had the same problem. We have the same problem when we try to understand spiritual things. They can, they can only be discerned through the Holy Spirit of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 51. Then he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. I imagine Luke mentioned this right here to show that Jesus, even though he sort of exercised a little bit of independence there at this temple incident, he nevertheless was obedient to them. He didn't disobey his parents, even though he was the Son of God, which shows the exalted status that parents have. And if, of course, a lot of parents aren't as nice as Joseph and Mary was, but still. What is the the commandment with the promise? Children, honor your father and your mother. Obey them. Now again, Paul is talking to Christians, and Christian parents are going to be easier to obey than drunken alcoholics and that kind of stuff. He asked you to go out and rob a bank. No, you're not supposed to obey those kind of parents. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. She didn't understand, but she kept she kept thinking about it. Being now being the Messiah did not keep Jesus from being humble. Even the Messiah obeyed his parents. And notice that even though that He was misunderstood. Jesus was a misunderstood child. He still obeyed his parents. You hear a lot of people saying, oh, I was misunderstood. Yeah, every kid's misunderstood. Luke is concerned to show that Jesus was not a lawbreaker. Obeying parents, as I mentioned, was one of the Ten Commandments. Later on, of course, the Pharisees constantly claimed that Jesus was violating the law of God. He was actually not. He was violating the traditions of the Pharisees. But the charge could have stuck that Jesus was a lawbreaker who opposed Moses. And the Pharisees tried to make it stick. And Luke is trying to say, no, uh uh-uh. He didn't violate the law. He obeyed his parents. He obeyed the Ten Commandments. Again, I think Luke is trying to, to disabuse anybody that has the notion that Jesus was disobedient to his parents by staying in the temple without their knowledge. No, he didn't do that. He didn't disobey his parents. It was just a misunderstanding. They got separated. How does Luke know that Mary treasured all those things in her heart? Some people have speculated that Luke actually interviewed Mary personally about all this stuff. And that Luke, in fact, might have heard the story of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus through Mary. Because Mary was intimately involved in those events. Alright, now we're going to leave Jesus' 12-year-old temple episode. And we're going to talk about the 18 years now he has spent between that temple episode and the the beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 is where we'll start. 
these two verses are the only two verses in Scripture that talk about those 18 years of his maturing to manhood. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, starting at verse 52, and in divine and human favor. Human favor, people liked him. There's nothing wrong with God or other people thinking well of you. If you behave well, there's nothing wrong with that. If they admire you for your wisdom, but not for your money and for your power. My version, and I don't know what version I'm using here because I didn't write it down, but it says Jesus increased in wisdom and in years. An alternate reading of that years is stature. He increased in wisdom and in stature. He grew up, in other words. But whatever it means, the point is, is that Jesus, because he was a man as well as God, he had to grow. He had to develop. He had to be he had to wait until he matured before he started his divine mission. And that's where we're going to leave Luke chapter 2 right there. I hope you enjoyed this audio. We will start Luke chapter 3 in the next audio. And we will take up the story of John the Baptist. Hope you enjoyed this audio.